0: You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. As we were laying out the preaching calendar for this year, we knew that we were going to be in the end of Isaiah uh, when December hit, and Mike and Trent and I sat down with David and we started looking over sort of Advent and the themes of hope and joy and love and peace and realized then these chapters of Isaiah just dovetail and connect perfectly with those themes of Advent. And so in this Advent season, we'll be continuing through the end of the book of Isaiah, and you're going to see that we're going to sync up these chapters in Isaiah with those themes. And so this preaching uh, in the next four weeks is going to have a little more of a thematic focus to it. I want it to be a little more reflective, a little more meditative, a little more um, sitting in the text together and letting it sort of sink into us and wash over us. And so today, the, the focus, the theme, the idea is a present and future hope. We really want to lean into this idea of hope and the question of what is hope and what does it mean to have hope and how has God in Jesus given us the greatest and the best hope. If you just begin with thinking about the word hope or the concept hope and how we use that word, think about how it's different from a word like wish. Wish. Same kind of constellation of ideas, but when we say, I wish this were true, wish has a connotation that's a little bit more like when you wish upon a star, or like rubbing the lamp and the genie popping out and giving you three wishes. It's a little more pie in the sky, you know, in a a million years, this could maybe be true. But the word hope, the idea of hope, is more grounded and more rooted and more a sense of confident expectation. It's similarly future-oriented, but it's more confidently future-oriented. So, for instance, when the doctor comes into the hospital room and says, the surgery went well, we're very hopeful. What that engenders is a sense of optimism and a sense of of confidence and courage. We know we're not out of the woods yet. It sounds like there's still some risk and some possibilities for things not to go well, but there's there's an optimism that comes into play and a confidence. Uh, Hope is optimistic and a confident expectation of what is to come. God intends for His people to live in this world with a sense of hope. God's people ought to be the most hopeful people on the face of the planet. But in order for that to be true of us, our hope has to be anchored and rooted in the right place. And the reason many of us who would even call ourselves Christians struggle with hopelessness, with a lack of hope, struggle to live in the world in a deeply hopeful way, is because oftentimes our hope is misplaced. Our hope is rooted in and anchored in the wrong things, good things, but not things at the end of the day that that inspire in us a great confidence and expectation of what is to come. And so what the prophet Isaiah wants to do this morning is to make us temporarily hopeless in order to make us eternally hopeful. Okay, So so keeping with the Advent theme of darkness to light, Isaiah is going to start by, by giving us a picture of darkness that he might bring us to a place of joyful light. He wants to break down our false sources of hope and replace them with a true and lasting hope. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to walk through the chapters of Isaiah chapter 58 and 59 and, and see these themes woven throughout. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open it this morning to Isaiah 58 or 59. Uh, we'll start in 58 and we'll, we'll go all the way through 59. Um, this will be my chance to make my little commercial. I love technology. It's great. You should use it. But there's something about, especially when we're tackling a large chunk of text like this, that um, having an actual copy of the Bible is helpful because you can start to see the connections within the text. Your eyes start to fall across the page and you see connections between things that sometimes on a little smartphone screen, it's harder to see. And so I want to invite you to um, bring a copy of the Bible with you during Advent. If you don't have one, talk to the folks at the resource table. We'd love to give you one this Advent as a gift to you. But this would be a good season to have a Bible with you, because for the next four weeks, we'll just sort of be sinking into the text together. So let's begin in Isaiah 58, 1 through 5, and let's begin, as I said, with Isaiah confronting our sin. Isaiah 58, verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So the subject Isaiah is taking up in this text is the subject of fasting. For some of you, this is a strange word. Right? This idea of fasting is a spiritual discipline where we abstain from food in order to seek God more intently. So the hunger in our bodies connects to the hunger in our souls for God. And so fasting is a discipline whereby we, we avoid or abstain from physical food in order to nurture ourselves spiritually. That's what fasting is. Um, the problem here is that though God's people are engaged in this discipline, it's not actually the kind of fasting that God would desire. In fact, if you look at verse 5, God says, Will you call this a fast? It's as though God is saying, yeah, yeah, you're using the word fasting, but, but what you're doing isn't fasting. So why would you call this that? What is it about their fasting that God takes issue with? What's wrong with what they're doing? Well, as you can see from this paragraph, it says, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, you oppress all your workers, you quarrel and fight. The, 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 challenge, the problem that God's addressing here is the fact that on the surface, they're engaging in a spiritual discipline, but really, they're still out for their own purposes. Externally, they're involved in the right things, but their hearts are are in the wrong place. What they're doing is sort of the classic going through the motions. Going through the motions is a cliche that we use within Christianity to describe doing an external practice from a heart that's disconnected and it's not actually seeking God. How many of you have found yourselves going through the motions at some point? Maybe it looks like this, for you, this is a common scenario. I might or might not know this from experience, but let's say you had a fight with your spouse on the way to church, or this morning as you were getting the kids ready for church. Right? So, so there was some, some back and forth and some verbal arguments. Maybe you drove here in complete silence, staring icy stares at each other, thinking that if you just kept quiet, it would be so much clearer how angry you are. And then you got out of the car, slammed the door to make your point, shuffled your way to the door of the church, and then you come in the door and you're like, hey, how you guys doing? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah, things are good. Oh, we, we had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, some of you guys have experienced this, right? Like, my, my heart's not in the right place, but on the surface, man, I can go through the motions. We can joke, but the reality is some of you guys have been going through the motions for most of your life with God. Uh, much of your religious observance is, is ritual, and external observance disconnected from a heart that's really seeking after God. And the deeper issue, what, what, you have to ask, well, okay, God's obviously not happy about them going through the motions, but what is it that causes us to do this? What is it that causes us to be content with sort of a surface level obedience to what God wants at the expense of a heart that actually obeys and engages Him in worship? Now, we get a hint to the answer here in verse 2. Notice what God says. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. If we stop there, you'd say, well, that's good. He goes on to say, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. Okay, so throughout this text, you're going to see this emphasis on righteousness and justice. These are two key themes here. And righteousness is always defined in relation to God, and justice is always defined in relation to God. So what he's saying is, it's as if you were being righteous. See, see the problem, what's making you go through the motions is, you've replaced my judgment of things... With your own judgment of things. The word judgment here isn't a word that means condemnation or wrath. It's a word that means God's assessment of the situation. When he says you've forsaken the judgment of God, he means, he means you haven't agreed with my read on things. There's, there's a way that I see what's going on and you don't see it the way I see it. You've forsaken what I think about the situation. This issue of having a right judgment or right perception or right assessment of things is crucial to Christian discipleship. The question for our lives is, will we see the world and see life and see reality as God sees it? Or will we substitute our own judgment, our own assessment, our own perception of what is real? I was reading this week the Puritan author Richard Sibbs, and he talks about this idea of judgment and how important right judgment is to wisdom and to worship. Listen to what he says. The judgment of a spiritual man, that is a converted man, is agreeable to the nature of things. Truth is truth, and error is error, and that which is unlawful is unlawful, whether men think so or not. Hence it is that Satan attacks the judgment, for he cannot rule in any man until he has taken away or perverted that man's judgment. See, Sibs is saying crucial to wisdom is our ability to call truth truth and call error error and see things rightly. And one of the things that Satan does as he seeks to distract us and destroy us is to attack our judgment. To cause us to see things differently than God sees them. To render a different judgment than the judgment that God renders about life or about situations. So, so here's the question. How's your judgment? Where are you guilty of doing this? Of imposing your way of seeing things. Your description of what is and isn't right and good and true. Instead of submitting to God's judgment and what God sees and assesses as real and true. See, the, the real issue, Isaiah says, is you've defined fasting in ways that work for you. So, so you now can fast, quote unquote, while oppressing your workers, while fighting with one another, and while seeking your own pleasure, and, and you can feel like you're doing what God wants you to do. The only way you can do that is if you've redefined fasting in a way that's different from how God defines fasting. So now God's going to speak to them, he's going to say, no, 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 let let me give you now truth to redefine your perception. Let me show you what fasting is according to my judgment and my assessment. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So, so God describes, here's what fasting is in my book. Here's what it looks like to me. And what he brings up is simply this fact, worship and mercy are inseparable. You can't be right with God and wrong with your fellow man. You can't fast before God and oppress those who work for you. You can't seek God and ignore the needs of the people around you. Worship and mercy always go together. Hear these words in this text, in this paragraph. The oppressed. The hungry. The poor. The naked. The afflicted. These are the kinds of people, God says, that that true fasting, true worship engages. Are these people in your life? Do you know some people? Do you have some people in your world who are oppressed, hungry, poor, naked, afflicted? The pronouns in this paragraph are singular. If you pour yourself out for the hungry. So so the ways that we get involved with great works like the open door mission, maybe some of you give and give of your resources that that's great. That's a good thing for us to do communally. But but God asks a deeper question here. He says, No, that's great, but, but I'm not gonna let you fund mercy at the expense of being involved in mercy. There's a personalness to what mercy looks like. And so the question this this text raises for us is how, how are we personally involved? What are we going to do to get involved with those who are in need? What are we going to do to connect our concern vertically with God with our concern horizontally for those who are in need? I just want, if all you do is leave here today and just wrestle with that question, that's great. Because listen, here's the reality. There are amazing things happening within Coram Deo, people personally putting this to work. I mean, there are some amazing, I I, I heard two stories just this past week in the past seven days of how people have been personally involved in the work of mercy that made me go, that's amazing. And I also know there's lots of you who, who have no personal involvement. And so I don't want to be overly positive or overly negative. I don't want us to overly congratulate ourselves or overly feel convicted. I just want to say, how are we going to excel still more? How are you going to personally get involved in acts of mercy and justice, in in living out the worship of God horizontally? For my wife and I, it it was this passage about a decade ago, and specifically this verse... Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? It was this verse and God causing us to wrestle with the personalness of it and the question of how are we going to do that that sent us on the journey that ultimately resulted in the adoption of my youngest daughter, Grace. And Grace is now eight years old and she feels like just a part of our family and in a sense it's normal. But but for us, this was a very practical journey of sacrifice. Second mortgage on the house. Raising tens of thousands of dollars from people that we knew. Getting behind this giving of our time and energy to go make this happen. And, and dealing with all the other complications that brought into our lives in terms of attachment and engagement with a family and all of those things. And, and many of you have followed a similar journey either with adoption or with some other act of mercy. But the question that God would ask of us is, what does this look like for you? How will you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted? Here's the fascinating thing about the promise God makes. You notice this whole paragraph is if then, right? If you do this, then you'll experience this. And if you look at the promises that God makes to those who are merciful toward others, What you see is that mercy is its own reward, which totally messes with our categories. Because when we start thinking about disadvantaging ourselves for those who need mercy or justice, we tend to do sort of a cost-benefit analysis, right? Of how much time would it take? How much money would it cost me? What's the inconvenience going to be to me? And and what will I gain out of that? Or what will be the the payback for that? Or, Or how will that bless me in some way? But but notice what God says is, if you do these things, here's what you gain. Flourishing. Life. Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden. It's just all language of flourishing and life and meaning and significance. It's not if you do X, you'll be rewarded with Y. It's if you take care of those in need, you're going to experience the great blessing of life. And flourishing, your soul being alive, even if you're in places that are dark and scorched, you're not going to be dark, you're going to be light, you're not going to be scorched, you're going to be like a well-watered garden. Mercy is intrinsically rewarding. So what do you and I need to do? To be personally involved. Now verse 13, he's going to bring the conversation back now to kind of something similar to fasting, which is Sabbath. And the assumption is that their fasting and their Sabbath days kind of went together and so the reason he's talking about Sabbath here is because it connected to how they understood fasting. But notice it's again, if-then language. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, Not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's just get honest for a second. There's not a commandment that we as Americans break with less conviction and more frequency than the command to honor the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a day for football, shopping, eating out, whatever we didn't get to do during the week is what we do on the Lord's Day, right? I mean, generally, we don't feel deep conviction over what does it mean to honor this day as a day set apart. And yet God says, look, if you'll... Turn back your foot from doing your pleasure on my holy day. And if you'll just honor me by honoring this day and its uniqueness, you'll take delight in the Lord. Again, the the benefits are an overflowing sense of joy and life in God. A sense of spiritual flourishing and fulfillment. Now, there's a whole sermon here on Sabbath that I don't have time to preach, But Mike and I talked about it for about 30 minutes on the Wednesday Conversation podcast last week. So if you want the the sub-sermon that's about the Sabbath, I'd encourage you to listen to that. Um, All I want to say this morning is that the main issue here is the same as with fasting. And that is, (laughs) will we substitute God's assessment for ours? Will we substitute our rendering of what is right and good with God's, Or will we just say, God is God. He is to be honored and worshipped, and so we're going to submit our understanding to his, and we're going to try to arrive at a, listen, I don't want to be a legalist about the Sabbath, and there's a lot of questions that we can't answer this morning, but, but let's just ask, are we willing as 21st century busy, productive Americans to submit to God's wisdom on what it means to honor the Lord's day? So, so remember, the core issues that have been raised so far are the issues of justice and righteousness. And what God's saying is, look, when, when our judgment is skewed, when our perception of reality is off, when we come up with our own definitions of what justice and righteousness are, what happens is our justice becomes unjust, and our righteousness becomes unrighteous. And that's not just a personal problem, that becomes then a societal problem. When we're off, when when we misjudge reality and therefore act in ways that are unjust and unrighteous, that spills over from within us into the society around us. And that's where we're going to go then in Isaiah 59. The focus is going to move from the people of God to society as a whole. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is perhaps one of the most important verses in the Bible for our understanding of God and sin. It says very simply, what our iniquities, what our sins have done is made a separation between us and God. It's not that God can't hear, it's that He doesn't hear because our sin is in the way. And then, now Isaiah goes on and catalogs what our sin looks like as it spills out and gets multiplied in society. When you get a bunch of people together who are all broken and who are all unrighteous and who have all substituted their own judgment of the facts for God's, what do you end up with? Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. That's a description of your teenage years right there. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace." So why does the world seem hopeless to us? Why do we lack a sense of hope about life? Because we know this to be true, right? Now Here's an interesting, remember the connection between Isaiah 58 and 59. What he said in 58 is, when, you, when we depart from God's judgment, God's assessment of things, then we start redefining words, redefining things like justice and righteousness in ways that work for us. And where we end up is chapter 59, in a society where truth has gone and justice is abandoned and people are doing whatever's right in their own eyes. And it's interesting then when you think about some of the things Jesus says. As I was reflecting on this text in Isaiah, the Lord brought to mind Luke chapter 11, which is this sort of cryptic teaching from the Lord Jesus. Here's what he says, Luke eleven thirty-four. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. What is this eye that he's talking about? This eye is your judgment. Your ability to assess things spiritually. Your discernment, you might call it. And Jesus says, that eye, that ability to perceive and discern truth, is the lamp of your body. And when it's healthy, your whole body is full of light but when it is bad your body is full of darkness so now think of isaiah and the list he just gave us of the ways our bodies participate in sin your hands are defiled with blood your fingers with iniquity your lips have spoken lies your tongue mutters wickedness their feet run to evil their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity jesus is giving us a commentary on the book of isaiah He's saying when we replace God's judgment with our own, our body is full of darkness. And therefore our world is full of darkness. Chapter 59, verse 9. Therefore, as a result of all this, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope, there's our word, we hope for what? Light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. If you're a skeptic or a non Christian here, this is one of the reasons why I'm personally convinced of the truthfulness of the Bible because it lays its finger on the human condition better than anything I've ever read. Just that verse right there. We hope for light. Right? Everybody everywhere hopes for a world that looks a certain way, that could be characterized as light or flourishing or life. Yet behold, darkness. How do you explain the common hope that all human beings have for a world that looks a certain way and our failure to be able to achieve that world? The scriptures make sense of that. See, what we want is we want a world of racial harmony, but we live in a world of racial tension. We want a world of ethical business practices, but we live in a world of bribery and corruption. We want a world of peace and freedom, but we live in a world of conflict and strife. We hope for light and behold darkness. That one phrase is a summary of life as we experience it. We hope for light and yet darkness. Isaiah continues, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. Think of what Jesus said, Luke 11. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Why? Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing, denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. I told you at the beginning, Isaiah wants to make you hopeless so that he can make you hopeful. I trust you're getting there. If you're not there yet, verses 14 and 15 are a comprehensive summary of what we experience as a result of sin in ourselves and in the world. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Is there a better description of our current cultural climate? If you say that Jesus is the only way to God you make yourself a prey. If you say that marriage is an ordinance designed by God for a man and a woman, you make yourself a prey. If you say that pornography is wicked and destructive, you make yourself a prey. Truth has stumbled in the public square. Justice is turned back. Righteousness cannot enter. Do you feel hopeless yet? I mean, I hope you feel some sense of hopelessness and a sense of, yep, that sounds a lot like the world we live in. That sounds like an accurate rendering of what the world looks like in the darkness and despair and brokenness of sin. And listen, what every other person out there in the culture will tell you is that, yeah, yeah, things aren't as good as they could be, but if we just apply ourselves a little more resolve or a little more intelligence or education... Or if we just abandon this program and adopt this program over here, then it'll fix the ills of the world. Then we'll finally have hope. That's the story human beings have been telling for thousands of years. And it hasn't yet materialized. The good news of the gospel is that there is a sure and eternal, a lasting hope that brings hope both in the future and in the present right now in the world that we live in. But that hope is only ours if we first of all admit the hopelessness of reality. Admit the reality of darkness. Of sin. Of separation from God. And of all the consequences that come with that. To those who are willing to see, to those who agree that this is true, Isaiah turns the corner now and gives us very good news. This is our hope. Isaiah 59, 15, the second half of the verse. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. My friends, listen to me. Did you hear the good news right there? Here's the good news. God saw. God recognized that there was no justice. And so his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. In the midst of a world that has no righteousness, in the midst of a world that has turned from God's judgment and and come up with our own definitions and distinctions, God still sees, God is still just and righteous, and God is willing to bring His righteousness to bear on the hopelessness of our world. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak according to their... Excuse me, according to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. It all culminates right here in verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A Redeemer will come to Zion. A Redeemer has come to Zion. To those who will turn from transgression. And so here is the basic call of the Gospel. The basic invitation. The good news is always a turning from and a turning to. It's the declaration God has sent a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. This Redeemer has come. His kingdom is available. His forgiveness and His power and His grace is there for you and for me and for all who will turn. Turn from transgression, turn to the God who has brought salvation in and through His Redeemer. That's the good news. That's the hope that we have in a world that is hopeless. The hope that God has intervened. The hope that God has entered in from outside the system to repair and to redeem and to restore and to bring a new creation and give new life and usher us into a new reality through His Redeemer. Verse 21 gets us into the, the, the nature of how this redemption works. In fact, verse 21 is probably the most important verse that, that brings to fullness all that we've read so far. Look at this, Isaiah fifty-nine twenty-one. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. Who is the them that he's talking about? It's those who turn from transgression. This is my covenant with them, with those who see their sin and iniquity and want to turn from it and turn to me. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you. Not a plural you, but a masculine, singular you. Here's my covenant with my people. My spirit is upon you. Single, male figure. And my words I have put in your mouth, single male figure, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Here's the nature of how God's redemption works. He makes promises to all who will turn from transgression. And he gives those promises in and through one singular individual who is our covenant head, our representative. Our trust in that leader, our trust in that figure opens up to us all the blessings and benefits that God has given to that Redeemer for the benefit of his people. There is no hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is amazing hope An amazing grace, an amazing blessing in and through God's promises to the Lord Jesus Christ that belong to all those who are united with that Redeemer. I brought along a photograph this morning of my great-grandfather, Nick. That's him on the right, sitting down. That's his brother, Matt, next to him, holding the rifle. Uh, Nick and Matt emigrated to the United States from Norway. This picture was taken in 1906 outside Draper, South Dakota, when these men were building the railroad line in that part of South Dakota. By the way, if you're a dude and you want to learn how to dress, look at these guys. These guys are on the frontier. They're building a railroad, and they happen to have along with them a three-piece suit, a tie, a pocket watch, a hat. Even the boys are, look at those kids. man. But My great-grandfather, Nick, emigrated to the United States, and here's what that means. That decision, that action, changed the future for all of his descendants, including me and my children. I was born in the United States of America, not by my own decision, but because of my solidarity with Nick Thune. My children were born here. My children speak English and not Norwegian, thanks be to God, not because of my decision, but because of our covenant solidarity with great Grandpa Nick, his decision affects us because we are in union with him. We're in solidarity with him. We are his offspring. And God says, here's how my covenant, here's how my redemption works. I've given my spirit and my word to my redeemer, and they exist for him and for his offspring. They will not depart from this time forth and forevermore. My friends, this is the reason we can hope. Why can we hope in light of the world that Isaiah has just portrayed for us? In light of the world that we know to actually exist. A world where there's all kinds of unrighteousness and injustice and lack of truth and people starving and being beheaded and suffering under unjust and oppressive governments. How in the midst of the world we know with all of its darkness can we have any kind of lasting hope? Because God has given us a Redeemer. And that Redeemer has given us the Word of God and the Spirit of God to enable us to go and do the work of God for the glory of God. See, verse 21 of chapter 59 is is the power for us to actually live the life God invites us to live in chapter 58. How do we become the kind of people who pour ourselves out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted? How do we become the kind of people who honor the Sabbath and call it a delight? How do we become the kind of people who fast and pursue spiritual disciplines in a way acceptable to the Lord? How do we speak truth in a public square where truth is lacking? Through God's Spirit and through His Word. Which are ours in Christ. Jesus is the head of a new people, bringing a new reality into the world, a new kingdom, and a new righteousness, and ultimately an entirely new creation that we await in the future. That hope is future, but it's also present. It's ours right now. So listen to me. We can be a people that live right now with profound hope. Because we have experienced the grace of God in Christ. We have access to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. And through those things, God intends to bring about a new creation. And it starts with you and me. It starts with a new creation in you as God brings conversion to you. As He inspires you and awakens you to turn from transgression and turn to His Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues then as He pours His Spirit into you and reforms and reshapes you by His Word so that you live in the world in ways that are increasingly more righteous, more just, more honoring, more truthful. God intends to turn us into this kind of people. This is the great hope that we have. A Redeemer will come to Zion. A Redeemer has come to Zion. And that Redeemer, through His Word and Spirit, empowers us to do the very thing God asks us to do. So you realize, here's the the beauty. You and I can live with hope. Hope that's not just future, like one day Jesus is going to come back and zap us all out of here, and we'll be in heaven. But a hope that's present. Because Jesus lived, died, and rose from death, you and I can live differently now. You and I can bring hope into this world now. The city of Omaha now can look different than it did 10 years ago. And 10 years from now can look different than it does right now because we are here. And because God through us is bringing his hope into the world, his justice and his righteousness into the world, his truth into the world in ways that bring about human flourishing and life and joy and meaning and purpose. Not only do we have a hope that is future for our own salvation, we have a hope that is present right now that we are agents of redemption in the world because we're united with the Redeemer. So we don't bring redemption, Jesus brings redemption, but we participate in his redemptive work through being united with him. And so we have the privilege of judging, assessing things as God assesses them of participating in the renewing work that God's doing in the world through our own work. We have the privilege of bringing about justice and righteousness and truth by the gracious empowerment of the Spirit of God. So so I'm hopeful this morning primarily because of Jesus, but also because of Jesus in you. I'm hopeful this morning, not just that Jesus has come, but that Jesus is working through his people for the good of his world. So we, as God's people, can look around at the darkness and at the chaos around us, and we cannot pretend that's not true. We can say, yep, that's true. Human sin is real. Brokenness in the world is real. Darkness in the world is real. That's true, but... A Redeemer will come to Zion. A spirit is alive in the people of Zion. God is bringing his hope to the world through us. Therefore, we can have hope. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for justice, but there is none. The Lord saw it. His own arm brought salvation. A Redeemer has come to Zion and is coming again. Let's pray together. God, this morning we thank you for the present and future hope that you have unveiled in and through your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we this morning would acknowledge our sin and our iniquity and our brokenness that separates us from you. We would acknowledge that we have acted according to our judgment instead of yours. We have redefined the rules in ways that work for us. We have avoided the truth and replaced it with our own definitions of what is true. God, for these things this morning, we humble ourselves and we turn. We ask your forgiveness. We ask this morning that that you now would bring us anew to the Redeemer. Would you help us turn afresh this morning from sin to the Lord Jesus and help us embrace all the promises that you make to us through him? Thank you, God, for all that we get in on by being in Jesus' family and part of your people through him. And would you now move through us in ways that bring greater righteousness and greater justice and greater truth in the world? Would you help us to be hopeful people who bring hope to others because of the hope that you've given in and through your son? God, you intend us to live with great and lasting hope. And so for those here who are hopeless or whose hope is flagging, would you renew the strength, the vibrancy, the vitality of their hope? Would you help us walk out of here this morning rejoicing in the hope that a Redeemer has come to Zion and is coming again? We pray this for our good and for your glory.